0: This is Addie Banks, and welcome to Hope From History at 88.1 The Truth, where we share the truth about Black American history. We focus on early Black entrepreneurs in American history to inform and inspire. I always say that if all you know about Black history is slavery and Jim Crow, you don't know Black history. If you think Black business owners collaborating for success is new, Then you have not heard about the National Negro Business League, formed in 1900. Business ownership and success is as much a part of Black American history as slavery. Slaves earned wages to buy their freedom and the freedom of family members. Over the coming weeks, I will present some of these slave and free entrepreneurs, men and women who claimed success during the decades of slavery and Jim Crow America. I will present a remarkable network of men and women who supported each other to seek the American dream. Former slave Booker T. Washington, who shared his humble beginnings in his autobiography Up From Slavery, knew something about succeeding against the odds. He was the first president of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama and traveled the country tirelessly, raising money to educate the children of former slaves. He had another passion, uplifting the plight of Negroes toward a better and more respectful life as first-class citizens. Toward that end, he founded the National Negro Business League in Boston, Massachusetts in 1900. He did so to promote the interests of black American businesses. The organization was formally incorporated in 1901 in New York. The National Negro Business League predated the United States Chamber of Commerce by 12 years. Mr. Washington believed that solutions to the problem of racial discrimination were primarily economic and that Black American entrepreneurship was vital. Thus, he founded the League to further the economic development of Black American businesses in order to achieve social equity in American society. These were his own words to Black League members expressing his intent. I will read excerpts of his presentation. Quote, I am sure that you join with me in giving this local committee, the Boston chapter, our most hearty thanks. One object of this organization of business men and women, as I understand it, is to bring together annually those of our race who are engaged in various branches of business, from the humblest to the highest, for the purpose of closer personal acquaintance, of receiving encouragement, inspiration, and information from each other. The other object is to originate plans by which local business organizations will be formed in all parts of our country where such organization can be made to serve the best interests of the race. This organization does not overlook the fact that mere material possessions are not, and should not be made, the chief end of life, but should be made as a means of aiding us in securing our rightful place as citizens, and enlarging our opportunities for securing that education and development which enhance our usefulness and produce that tenderness and goodness of heart which will make us live for the benefit of our fellow man and for the promotion of our country's highest welfare. I have faith in the timeliness of this organization. As I have noted the conditions of our people in nearly every part of our country, I have always been encouraged by the fact that almost without exception, whether in the North or in the South, where I have seen a black man who was succeeding in business, who was a taxpayer, and who possessed intelligence and high character, That individual was treated with the highest respect by the members of the white race. In proportion, as we can multiply these examples north and south, will our problem be solved. Let every Negro strive to become the most useful and indispensable man in his community. When an individual produces what the world wants, whether it is a product of hand, head, or heart. The world does not long stop to inquire what is the color of the skin of the producer. This meeting will prove a great encouragement to our people in all parts of the country, bringing together as it does the men and women of our race who have been most successful in life. The most humble black boy will be made to feel that what you have done, he can do also. We must not in any part of our country become discouraged, notwithstanding the way often seems dark and desolate. We must maintain faith in ourselves and in our country. No race ever got upon its feet without a struggle. trial and discouragement. The very struggles through which we often pass give us strength and experience that in the end will prove helpful. Every individual and every race that has succeeded has had to pay the price which nature demands from it. We cannot get something for nothing. Every member of the race which succeeds in business however humble and simple that business may be, because he has learned the important lessons of cleanliness, promptness, system, honesty, and progressiveness is contributing his share in smoothing the pathway for this and succeeding generations. In conclusion, may I add that we shall succeed in our purpose in this organization just in proportion as each individual member is able to forget himself, to hide himself behind the great cause, which has brought us together. Let us not lay too much stress upon points of order and useless parliamentary machinery, which often occupies valuable time and v- prevents our accomplishing the real purpose with which organizations are formed. I want to congratulate you upon the fact that thirty five years after our freedom, so large a body of representative business men and women of the race have assembled in the city of Boston, a city dear to every Negro in all parts of the land. We shall form an organization which will prove potential in the lifting of our race in all parts of our country, no matter under what conditions we may find ourselves surrounded. May we ever keep in mind that the law which recognizes and rewards merit no matter under what skin found, is universal and eternal and can no more be nullified than we can stop the life-giving influence of the daily sun. Having a notice from the local committee, I will now proceed to introduce the next speaker on the program, who is a successful real estate dealer who comes to us from the state of Virginia, I have great pleasure in producing Mr. Giles B. Jackson of Richmond, Virginia, who will speak upon the subject of real estate. What insightful remarks by Booker T. Washington in summarizing the sentiments of our ancestors. More about this historic organization when we return. I have located the program booklet for this historic meeting that was published by a Black Boston printer, J.R. Hamm. It is an impressive 279-page publication with pictures or sketches of presenting members, articles and statistics on the condition of Blacks recently out of slavery. The two-day event was chock full of speeches and networking opportunities. The first presenter, Mr. Giles Jackson, talked about real estate and stated the purpose of the league. He said, as early as July 28th last, I was informed of the part I was expected to take in this great meeting, assembled here this 23rd day of August in the city of Boston, Massachusetts, for the purpose of conferring considering and consolidating ourselves together, for in union there is strength and the bulwark of all nations. The purpose thus stated, presentation of the opening speech, was the Colored American in Business presented by Mr. Andrew Hillier, and it framed the focus of the meeting. Presenters were called to further set the tone for the meeting. Presentations were given about particular crafts and business types, as well as awareness of the diverse composition of Negro business enterprises in various locations. These included reports describing black businesses in Pensacola and Jacksonville, Florida, Infield and Charleston, North Carolina, and New Bedford, Massachusetts. A 25-year-old James E. Shepard, future founder of what became North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina, presented about the Negro as a real estate dealer. Members heard presentations about the business of hair services, dressmaking, being a pharmacist, tailoring, catering, barbering, undertaking, being a florist, and being a publisher. Mr. F. G. Stedman of East Hampton, Connecticut, presented about manufacturing souvenir bills. They received insight into the workings of the savings bank, heard from a coal mining company owner, and ways to co-operate stores for parity. Mrs. Alberta Morris Smith of Chicago, Illinois, discussed women's development in business. Keep in mind, this was 1900. The League promoted the commercial endeavors and economic advancement of Blacks mainly in the South, but not solely there. Via a network of state and local chapters and affiliated professional and trade organization, membership was sought. Membership in the League was open to any, quote, any person of the race in good standing in his or her community, quote, whether the person was in business, professional, or private life. Historian Juliet Walker identified the period 1900 to 1930 as the golden age of black business, She cites that according to the National Negro Business League, the number of black-owned businesses doubled from 20,000 in 1900 to 40,000 in 1914. There were 450 undertakers in 1900, rising to 1,000 in 1914. Drugstores rose from 250 to 695. Local, Retail merchants, most of them quite small, jumped from ten thousand to twenty five thousand. The league initially operated at Tuskegee Institute, where Booker T. Washington was president. He traveled from city to city to sign up local entrepreneurs into his national network. In May nineteen thirteen, a respected black journalist, Ralph Waldo Tyler, was elected as the first national organizer of the League. Tyler's role was to travel throughout the southern United States and document the state of Negro businesses and encourage enrollment in the League. By the 1920s, the federal government had set up a small unit to distribute information to black entrepreneurs, but no financial aid was forthcoming. Understandably, the need for such an organization was timely, pertinent, and effective. The official, stated mission, and main goal of the National Negro Business League was to promote the commercial and financial development of the Negro. It was recognized as, quote, composing of Negro men and women who have achieved success along business lines, quote. A press release indicated that the League was organized to help the Negro businessman of the country solve their merchandising and advertising problems to promote advertising in Negro newspapers and magazines and to influence national advertisers to use Negro publications this to reach the importantly valuable group of people with its tremendous purchasing power. The League rapidly grew from 320 chapters in 1905 to more than 600 chapters in 34 states by 1915. The League included small business owners, barbers, hairdressers, contractors, druggists, laundry and grocers to name a few. Among the membership were doctors, farmers, dentists, craftsmen, manufacturers, undertakers, beauty and hair care manufacturers, as well as newspaper personnel. The organization claimed that they sought to put economic development at the forefront of getting African American equity in the United States. Business was the main concern, But civil rights came next. In 1905, the Nashville, Tennessee chapter protested segregation in local transit with a boycott. Booker T. Washington felt that there was a need for African Americans to build an economic network as a catalyst for change and social improvement. There were numerous outgrowth organizations of the league with affiliations, including the National Negro Bankers Association, the National Negro Press Association, the National Association of Negro Funeral Directors, the National Negro Bar Association, the National Association of Negro Insurance Men, the National Negro Retail Merchants Association the National Association of Negro Real Estate Dealers, and the National Negro Finance Corporation. The league primarily expanded black business networks and fostered a vibrant business community for them, but it also had key direct and indirect connections with white businesses and corporations. Oftentimes, white business leaders were presenters at the National Negro Business League Conventions. This included corporate giants Andrew Carnegie and Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears Roebuck and Company. Rosenwald was also known as the partner with Black Americans to build thousands of schools across the South for Black students. My research uncovered that Mr. Rosenwald's secretary was a member of the League and thus a Black man. The League was evidence of a dual and separate business and social system, typical of segregated life in this nation at the time. However, the networks of the League, organized in state and local leagues, was not unlike those established by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. A very few southern towns actually had a black Chamber of Commerce. It was reported in League Files that local chapters of the White Chamber of Commerce sometimes interacted with the Negro Business League, offering their city as the site of League conventions, welcoming League members to the city once they had been selected, and providing the League with names of black businessmen in the area, and occasionally suggesting cooperation, even association, on an ongoing basis. After the death of Booker T. Washington in 1915, the League was headed by his successor at Tuskegee Institute, Robert Moton. Records of the Dunbar National Bank of New York City revealed that in 1929, Robert Moton, as president of the League, was invited in 1928 to serve on the board of directors of a Harlem, bank established by the Rockefeller family that offered low-interest loans to blacks. Dr. Washington's last annual address to the League continued to stress the economic purpose behind its founding. Quote, at the bottom of education, at the bottom of politics, even at the bottom of religion itself, there must be for our race, as for all races, an economic foundation, economic prosperity, and economic independence. Mr. Junus Groves of Edwardsville, Kansas, was a founding member of the Kansas State Negro Business League and later served as its president. He was asked at the 1900 assembly to present about potato farming, and he knew something about growing potatoes. Gross is remembered as one of the wealthiest black Americans of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Known as the potato king of the world by 1902, Gros optimized potato growth methods outproducing anyone else in the world to that point. Here is his story. Junus Groves, the son of Martin and Mary Anderson Groves, was born a slave in 1859 in Greene County, Kentucky. After emancipation, he received some public schooling three months out of the year, but taught himself to read, write, and understand mathematics. With just 90 cents to his name, Groves ventured to Edwardsville, Kansas, during the exodus of 1879, where he worked for 40 cents a day at a meat packing house. After three months, he was making 75 cents a day. In 1880, he married Matilda E. Stewart, and the couple had 14 children. He began to share crops in 1883, and his first year of sharecropping, Groves made a $125, which he then used to buy land, a milk cow, and other investments toward his next crop. Groves worked hard, and in 1884, he proudly purchased a nine-acre farm in Edwardsville. After his second year, Groves had 20 acres, in his third year, he landed 10 more acres in a cabin. That same year, he bought 80 acres from a Native American for $500. Subsequent acquisitions included a sawmill and five adjoining farms. Brought his total holdings to more than 760 acres, in addition to growing potatoes He harvested vegetables and created fruit orchards, including apples, peaches, and pears, as well as a vineyard. In 1902, Groves was named by the United States Department of Agriculture as the potatoes King of the World for beating his closest competitor on the planet by 11,500 bushels. His superior methods led to the production of 721,500 bushels of the crop in a single year, out-producing anyone else in the world to that point. His worth was estimated at $80,000 in 1904, and 300000 in 1915, he was considered one of the most prosperous Black Americans of the late 19th and earliest 20th century. junus Grove surpassed financial parity with most Whites in Kansas and combated racism by providing economic opportunities for Blacks and Whites. During the busy farming season, Groves employed up to fifty laborers, both black and white, to work his farms. His harvest was so large that a private railroad track was built on his land by Union Pacific Railroad called the Spur, a special track used for loading and unloading rail cars for the shipping of his potatoes, fruits, and vegetables extensively throughout the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Like other titans of his era, Groves had other financial ventures. He owned and operated a general goods store in Edwardsville. He held stock in mines in Indian Territory and New Mexico, as well as stock in Kansas Banks, and a major interest in the Kansas City Casket and Embalming Company. In addition to being a founding member of the local Negro Business League, he founded or co-founded the Pleasant Hill Baptist Church, the Cobb Valley Potato Association, and the Sunflower State Agricultural Association. Booker T. Washington featured Groves in his book, The Negro in Business, 1907, giving high praise to Groves as our most successful Negro farmer. In 1913, Groves founded the community of Groves Center near Edwardsville and sold small tracts of land to Black American families. Groves built three mansions, two of them burned down mysteriously. At the height of his success, he constructed a 22-room brick mansion, complete with electric lights, two telephones, hot and cold running water in all the bedrooms, and it was the largest home in the area. Groves utilized his will and influence to combat racism. He founded a black American community center in Edwardsville with a golf course for black citizens, which was perhaps the first of its kind in the country. Junus Groves was well known as a a philanthropist, and he gave a portion of his yearly crop to the local hospital. Groves died of a heart attack at the age of 66. His funeral, one local newspaper reported, was the largest ever in Edwardsville, and the funeral brought attendance and 300 automobiles. In coming weeks, I will share the histories of outstanding businessmen and women of this era who defied the odds to create the American dream for themselves. This is Addie Banks telling you there is hope from history. Visit our Hope from History and asbhistory.com websites and subscribe to the ASB History YouTube channel where I have several videos about Black American history. Thank you for joining me at 881 The Truth. Until next time, I wish you peace and joy in God's blessings.